would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, that's in the Old Testament toward the beginning of the Bible. If you open kind of in the middle, you'll get to the Psalms. And then if you go left, you'll eventually come to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 18 and the beginning chapter of 19 today. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in 2 Samuel. So let me just give us a quick recap of what we've been uh, considering and thinking about over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, since chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, things have not been going well for David and his family and for the people of God. It's been a downward spiral. You'll remember back in chapter 11, that was where we saw David commit adultery against Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah, as well as a couple of other uh, soldiers that were killed as he was uh, having orders for Uriah to be killed. Uh, We saw in chapter 12 that God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. And David uh, repented and confessed and was given forgiveness by the Lord. But we also saw in chapter 12 that the Lord said, David, you indeed are forgiven, but there will be consequences for your sin. There will be sexual sin and violence in your household as a consequence. And we've been seeing in the subsequent chapters that being fulfilled. Uh, In many different ways, we've seen David's son, Absalom, who killed his brother, Amnon, because of the sin that he did against his sister, Tamar. And we've seen Absalom beginning to conspire to take over the kingdom from his father and David being forced to flee from the city of Jerusalem with loyal followers to David. We've seen Absalom enter into the city and to move into the to the city, into the palace And David forced to wander in wilderness as in exile. But we also saw that David planted a mole in Absalom's uh, group of counselors. And that through that mole, David not only was able to help uh, turn away Absalom from one of his counselors, Ahithophel, but also that David was told about the new plan and what was going to be happening. And so we came to the end of chapter 17, and we see there that David uh, went to the city of Mahanaim. And there he received rest and refreshment from loyal followers. And we also read that Absalom and his army began to move out to battle against David. So the passage today, chapter 18 and the beginning part of 19, shows us the royal mess that took place as the two armies met and battled And the fallout that took place. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. 
And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss that the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said, Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why, did, why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahamaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahamaz answered, 
When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gates and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate and all the people came before the king. Let's pray together. Our God and King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who caused these words to be written down so long ago would be present with us right here, right now, opening our hearts and our minds so that we might see what you want us to see from this portion of your word. And if nothing else, Father, we pray you would show us the gospel of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. What a royal mess. We come to another passage in 2 Samuel that makes us wonder why did the Lord want this included in his holy word? And what are we supposed to get out of a story like this? There is a lot here in this passage, and we're not going to be able to cover everything in it today. But what I want us to see today are three things from this portion of God's Word. The first is that it's very important to not only know, but also to be on the right side when you're going to battle. Secondly, as we see David here expressing grief and sorrow, it shows us the reality of grief in this world. And then thirdly, there is hope for God's people. So first of all, 
it's important for us to be on the right side when we're going to battle. This is not just a story about a son dishonoring his father. It's not just a story about a prince rebelling against his king. It's not just a story of a military coup in some country in the Middle East. It's bigger than that. David was not just a king. He was the king of God's people. He was the Lord's anointed king to lead the people of God. And so Absalom rebelling against King David is not just an indication that there was trouble in the family or that there was a military problem in the country. It was an, an, an act of defiance against the Lord God Almighty. Absalom was setting himself up as an enemy of the Lord God Almighty, as an enemy of the Lord's anointed. That word anointed is the word that we get the word Christ from. Absalom was functioning as an anti-Christ. And because he did that, he was accursed by God. Now we can see that a couple ways here in the story. I want you to notice, if you look back into the text, that the actual account of the battle is actually very short. It's actually just three verses, six, seven, and eight. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the, fact, the face of the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. That's it. That's the entire account of the actual battle. Just three verses in this very large passage that we're looking at today. And that's because that's not where we're supposed to put the emphasis and the focus. The focus is what's happening around the account of the battle. After we read the account here in these three verses, we see next that Absalom, after the battle was over, his army had lost. He either was separated from his army or he was in the process of trying to get away and fleeing. And we read in verse 9 that he ran into David's army, to soldiers loyal to David. Now he tried to get away. And he tried to get away riding on a mule. Now that's actually important. We'll come back to that in just a second. But he was riding a mule and they were in the forest, the forest of Ephraim. And so they tried to get away. And as they did, uh, the mule took him into the forest and under a tree that had low hanging branches on it. And Absalom's hair got caught in the branches of the tree. Now remember, as we've seen previously, as Absalom has described to us, he is a man who's very focused on how he looks. And his hair was very important to him, so much so that we even read at one point that when they cut his hair, that was given such attention that they actually told everybody how much it weighed afterward. His hair was his pride and joy. But here we see that his pride and joy led to his downfall. His hair is caught in the branches. And here we read that as he's there with his hair in the branches, the mule underneath him kept moving on such that he was then left just hanging in the tree by his hair. And as the text tells us, he was suspended between heaven and earth. Now, I want you to notice here, we get two very clear pictures of the fact that Absalom was a man who was accursed by God. The first here example that we see is because of the mule. Now, remember, the mule was the animal that David had picked to be the royal steed of his kingdom. 
It was a picture to all that the a picture of royalty, a picture of of the king on his royal steed. So we see that picture in other places. That's the reason why Absalom's writing it here. He was declaring for everybody that he was riding the royal steed. He saw himself as the king of Israel. But notice what happened. As he goes underneath the branches and his hair gets stuck and he's hanging there, we're given the detail very, very specifically that the mule kept going and left him. That's a picture of the kingdom leaving Absalom. Because this is a man who's accursed by God. But we know that he was accursed by God for another reason. Some of you know your Bibles well enough to know that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, God's word specifically says that cursed is anyone who is hung in a tree. Absalom was a man who indeed was accursed by God. We actually also see it later when we see Absalom buried. He is taken and thrown into a pit and then there are, we're told, rocks that are heaped over on top of him. And several times in the book of Joshua, we're told that people who were accursed by God, who were killed, were put into pits with uh, rocks that were heaped over them. Again, another indication that this is a, a person who was cursed by God. Absalom had set himself up against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord God Almighty himself. His pride, his arrogance, his lust for power and his fame had carried him into battle against his own father and against his king. And in the end, David's commander, Joab, killed him by placing darts, javelins, spears into his heart, piercing his heart. And if that wasn't enough to do him in, we're told that he was struck down by Joab's soldiers and then thrown into that pit and covered with rocks. There Joab died in shame and guilt, apart from a relationship with his father and apart from a relationship with the Lord God Almighty. The only thing that was left for Absalom was a monument that he built for himself, a monument to honor his own name. And perhaps ironically, almost certainly, it would have been a monument of stone. Reminding everyone of the stones that were heaped over his dead body in a pit in the forest. This story brings home the reality that God always wins. Justice is always accomplished. Remember, things had been looking really bad for David. He had been run out of Jerusalem. His palace and his harem had been overtaken. He had been exiled into the wilderness and he was greatly outmatched by Absalom and the army. But none of that mattered because David was on the Lord's side. David was the Lord's anointed and the Lord always wins. If you're a Christian, if you're one of God's people, if you're on the Lord's side, then be encouraged and be full of hope, especially in moments that are dark and bleak. After all, we know the end of the story. You know what the last book of the Bible tells you, the book of Revelation. God wins in the end. And that doesn't necessarily make everything in life go easily for us. It doesn't uh, mean that the difficulties uh, that we are called to walk through in this life simply just go away. But what it does mean is that in the midst of those things, 
We have strength and hope and encouragement because we trust what the scriptures tell us. God wins in the end. But if you're here and you're not one of God's people, uh, you're not on the Lord's side, then there's a word of warning for you here from the passage. The Lord God Almighty wins in the end. It's best, it's important, it's necessary to be on His side. So submit yourself to the kingship of the Lord God Almighty and give your life to Him and be in relationship with Him. And do so now while you have time. Because when you die or when He returns, it's too late. And let the words of Joshua chapter 24 echo in your ears. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This story shows us the importance of being on the right side. It also shows us the reality of grief. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 18 in verse 5, as David was sending out the army to go and do battle with Absalom, he gave very specific orders to his commanders. You can see it in verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders of Absalom. This command that David gave shows David's compassion, even and especially for his rebellious son. But it also shows us David's clouded judgment. One commentator that I was looking at this past week said that David's words here, to be gentle with Absalom, are like a cancer patient telling the surgeon who's about to go in and remove the tumor, be gentle with my cancer. Don't remove all of it, leave some of it so I can still have it. Joab's disobedience to David's order was actually wisdom. He disobeyed David in order to save David and to save the kingdom. But then I want you to notice that when the word got back to David about Absalom's death, what we have here is some of the most grief-filled and deeply sorrowful words in all of Scripture. From verses 19 down to verse 32 of chapter 18, we have this long scene of the word getting back to David. It's actually the longest section of the whole passage that we're looking at is about the story of how the word got back to David about what happened. The reason why it's that long and so detailed, it's to highlight for us how important it was as David got word. He's waiting, not just to hear about the victory on the battlefield, but he wants to know about his son. And as David hears that Absalom was killed, we read... Verses 33 and following, these powerful and sorrowful words. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And again in verse 4 of 19, Oh, my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. You can hear And you can feel the grief and the pain and the regret 3,000 years after these words were spoken. 
Now I want you to reflect for a moment on what was fueling this intense grief by David. Surely, part of it was, this was a father grieving over the loss of his son. His intense grief and his sadness was in part because of the reality of death in this world. It's a reality that we all face since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We live in a thorn-infested, cursed world, and death is a reality. And death brings a terrible pain and grief to us. And there is no need for us to hide that or to pretend that it's not true. It's part of what it means to live on this side of the Garden of Eden. Some of you know the wonderful quotation that comes from Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings in the last part of that trilogy in the return of the king after the the evil ring has been destroyed in Mount Doom. Uh, the wonderful and faithful character Sam Ganji wakes up from sleep and he's surprised that he's alive and he's surprised to look over and see his dear friend Gandalf. And then Sam says these words, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What, what has happened to the world? Pastor and seminary president Michael Kruger in reflecting on Sam uh, Gamgee's words says this, this statement is quite profound because it is different than asking what good things are going to come true. Rather, it asks whether sad things are going to come untrue. Thus, Sam's statement recognizes that there is currently something very wrong with the world. It is a place that is filled with sadness, cursed by sin, groaning as it awaits redemption. And in the final consummation, those sad things will be made untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be changed. That is our hope, brothers and sisters in Christ. But it is not yet our reality. And so we wait and we live in a world that is cursed by sin and has a reality of death. I think there's something else here that is fueling David's intense grief. And that is a sense of his own guilt. Surely David was remembering his own sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah and the other soldiers who were killed. And he's, he's remembering the, the, the prophecy that was given to him by God through Nathan that his own house was going to be wrecked with violence. That the sword would not depart from his house. And David knew that he himself had brought on those consequences. The consequences of death within his household. And although Absalom's guilty for his own sins and rebellion against the Lord, David has a sense that at least in part, it was a consequence of his own sin. That's probably why David cries out that he wishes that he would have died in Absalom's place. These are the words of a father who is feeling the weight of his failure within his household. Failure, failure of leadership, of modeling, of teaching, and the weight of that failure, the weight of David's sin is fueling his intense grief and his regret and his sorrow. There's some sobering reflections here for us. The first is this. It's impossible to live in this life 
without dealing with the reality of pain and death. I shared with you last Sunday, Easter Sunday, that one of our beloved next-door neighbors had passed away on the Thursday before Easter. And then yesterday, I hear uh, through the social media grapevines that one of my most beloved seminary professors, David Calhoun, passed away. A man who is one of the most godly men I've ever met. One of the most humble men I've ever met. And the Lord took him home to be with him. Until Jesus comes back, we live in a thorn-infested world that is cursed by God because of sin. And so pain and sorrow and grief are going to be real for us. And on the one hand, we should never be surprised by that truth. And we should never deny it or act like it isn't the truth. And yet, brothers and sisters in Christ, on the other hand, we should never lose hope. We should never be completely undone by that reality because we know that the reality of death and a world cursed by God because of sin is not the end of the story. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything sad is going to come untrue when He comes back. So we live in the reality of that already being true and already being the case and yet not yet being realized in this life. I also think that there's a sober reflection here for fathers. We need to see the importance of leading our families well. Of fathering our children with truth and grace. The importance of raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The importance of teaching and showing them what it looks like to glorify and to enjoy the Lord forever. So if you're here, if you're online and you're a father with children within your home, be encouraged and be inspired and be motivated to take your responsibility very seriously. Be at work teaching and modeling the truth of the Word of God and the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you need help, reach out to get help. And if you're a father... That isn't necessarily looking at your children in the home, but you're looking back with a sense of regret and grief for your failures in fathering your children well. Then remember, there is grace and forgiveness and peace in the gospel of our Savior. Know that we serve a sovereign and a faithful and a good God who is not limited by our failures or inadequacies. And so look to Him for your forgiveness and for grace and for peace. And that really leads us to the last thing that I want us to see from this passage. And that is the hope that there is for God's people. As David was experiencing and expressing his incredible grief and pain, we we see toward the end of our passage in in chapter 19, verses 5 through 8, Joab gets word of how distraught David is. And so he comes to David and he speaks to him. Listen to the force of these words. Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. 
Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. These are really some amazing words if you think about it. Joab coming and speaking to the king of Israel in this way. Joab had realized that David's grief was going too far. It was becoming excessive and unhealthy, and it was even becoming harmful to the kingdom of God. David's army had been victorious, but the grief that David was clouded in was keeping him from being able to see and to celebrate the victory of the Lord. It was almost uh, as if David would have rather have Absalom still alive, even if it meant everybody else had to have been killed. And Joab knew that the people of God were losing hope because of how the king was acting. And it is really remarkable that David responded the way he did. Look at verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Did you notice that David's finish, uh, finishes where he started? He started at the gate as his troops were heading out, going to battle with Absalom. As his troops saw him there, they paraded past him, seeing David safe. Seeing David at the city gate. And here we come to the end and again he's at the city gate. It was, a, it was a picture to be at the gate. For the king to be at the gate. It was a picture of power. It was a picture of being in control. And as the people marched out to battle Absalom, they saw the king at the gate and they knew that he was safe. And they knew that he would be able to send them help from the city. And now, because of Joab's words, David is again sitting at the gate. And the people come before him. And again, there is hope for God's people. Joab knew that the people of God needed to be filled with hope that could only come as they trusted in their king. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have an earthly king in whom we can put our ultimate hope. In fact, God's word in Psalm 146 explicitly tells us that we must not put our trust and our hope in earthly governing authorities. But what I want you to see as we finish this morning is how this story points us to the greater son of David. David's descendant. David's Lord who would come a thousand years after this story took place. The ultimate King, Jesus Christ. I want you to see and I want you to be filled as you look and see David's son Absalom compared and contrasted with David's ultimate and better son, Jesus Christ. Absalom was hung in a tree. He was accursed by God. He was pierced in his heart. He died. He was buried in a pit. And then he was covered with rock. And he died bearing the guilt and the shame that he had brought on himself by his sin and his rebellion against God. But consider David's greater son. The Lord Jesus Christ also hung on a tree. Suspended between heaven and hell. Pierced in the side. He died. 
He too was buried in a tomb that was covered with stone. Jesus too was accursed by God. He too bore guilt and shame as He died on the cross, but it wasn't His own shame and guilt. King Jesus was accursed by God because He took on the guilt and the shame of His people. Jesus took the curse that His people deserved to get so that they would never be accursed by God. Isn't that what we read in Galatians chapter 3? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was judged and he was cursed so that all those who have faith in him would never have to be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, because King Jesus didn't just die, but also rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning at this very moment, God's people now have a far greater hope in our King than the people of Israel did in King David. We have the hope and the certainty of the complete forgiveness of our sins and our past failures and the release of our regrets. We have hope and certainty that although this world is full of death and pain and grief, King Jesus is coming back and when He does, He's making all things sad untrue. And we have the hope and the certainty that Jesus has secured an eternal inheritance and reward for us that far outweighs the fallenness and brokenness of this world. And that even right now, He is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. That is the King in, whose, in whom our hope is steadfastly placed and which fills us with strength and encouragement to go out and to live like who He's called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. Teach us from it. Open our eyes. Help us to see the truth of it. Fill us with hope and encouragement. Fill us with the truth of the gospel. And as we come now to your table, feed us again. Feed us and nourish us spiritually. We need to be strengthened as we seek to go out and live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.